Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. I've always sung that line in that song thinking figuratively, you know, about the borders of, of my faith, about the borders where my fears start, about the borders of where I've, I've yet to go and the options and possibilities of discipleship in my mind. But the Spirit is leading us beyond borders, way beyond those. Right now, in the world, there are 196 different countries. Well, it depends who's counting. Some would argue there's a few less, some a few more, depending on who's in power and what your political agenda happens to be. They say the world is getting smaller. We live in a global village. The families of nations are coming closer together. 192 of them now participate in the United Nations, nearly every single recognized country in the world. There's a quick demonstration even of how this affects even our own community. If you were born in a country other than this one and yet attend Dort College, will you stand up a second? It's beautiful. Thank you. Have a seat. Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. Even national borders? Father, to trust what you would be doing on the other side of the world. To trust people who don't look like me, talk like me, have the same ancestry as me. Are you there too? 196 countries and way too many of them are at war with one another. Conflicts rage. Estimates right now that there are at least 10 different conflicts going on in the world where the body count is a minimum of 1,000 people from battle-engaged victimization. Some of even the top 10 body count wars taking place in the world are not even between one country and another, but within countries. The battles between the drug cartels and government and established forces in Mexico and Colombia rank within the top 10 killing wars in the world right now. There are the, world, the wars we see and the wars we don't see. There are the invisible wars, like Ebola in West Africa, plaguing another portion of humanity right now. Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. It was the Pentecostal vision, wasn't it? When our allegiance is to Christ and the, to be able to hear the language of love and the language of truth would transcend even borders and nationalities and languages and the vision cast that one day every tongue, tribe, and nation would find their home, find their place, and bow their knee before the one who is sovereign over all. Wars rage all over in the news today. It's pretty discouraging. My wife and I spend a lot of time falling asleep at night talking about a lack of hope in places like Syria, the battle in Israel and Palestine that just never seems to really go away, the ones that are boggling to the mind in places like Northern Ireland or different factions even within Christianity draw blood with one another. Nigeria and Boko Haram ISIS, this little Muslim caliphate is going through more names than the artist formerly known as Prince and keeps changing regularly. Afghanistan, the drug cartels, 
nations wage war. Our fellow man and our brotherhood divided by ideologies, languages, religion, access to resources. And so we fight. Some of these battles and are so old that they surpass even the generations that we can remember. People wake up into a world knowing that they are taught to hate somebody, not even necessarily knowing why, and taught to own the hate of a generation that has gone before. God has been speaking into the differences between nations and painting a picture for something bigger than that. In the prophetic, cultural architect imaginations of those who will follow him. One of the great problems in our reading of the Old Testament is we tend to think that God is pretty ethnocentric. That He's interested in Israel and the Jewish people to the exclusion of others. And one of the things that I've learned going back through and reading the prophetic books is that this simply is not the case. All of the prophetic books, major and minor, save two, have oracles addressing other nations. Two books are simply for other nations and don't even mention Israel. In the one we'll cover next week in Jonah, God even says, should I not be concerned about a nation like that? Moses, the fountainhead of the prophets, the first one ever to speak, actually first speaks engaging another country of the world as he's asked to go before Pharaoh. Only Hosea and Haggai don't mention other nations in their prophecies. And when Abraham is called to form the people of God, the permeable walls that will be the kingdom and true Israel... He is told that the goal, the final outcome, that he will be a blessing to the nations. Today in this series we've been walking through in the Minor Prophets, we come to the book of Obadiah. The shortest book in the Old Testament, one page long, doesn't even address Israel. It's all about Edom. And there's not a whole lot redemptive in it. Well, there's nothing redemptive in it. It is one long rant against a neighboring nation, talking about the judgment that God is about to bring on it. This tiny little seemingly insignificant country next door to Israel and this people group. And Obadiah has such harsh words for them. How do you make sense of this? What do you do with it? How is this part of our canon? And how does this prophet still speak to me? Well, you can read the whole book of Obadiah, but you won't get the whole story. Even this little glimpse, this little snapshot, and these verses, only one chapter long in this book, close, but it's not the close of the story. Let me show you the place of this country of Edom, which has its origin in the person of Esau, deep in the Old Testament. Esau is mentioned 90 times in nine different biblical books. And Esau is often also translated Edom, and these words are used interchangeably, including in the book of Obadiah. Edom is mentioned 131 times in 22 different biblical books, together mentioned 121 times in 24 different books of the Bible. That's more than one out of every three books address this little, tiny country, 30 miles long by 15 miles wide. They are the subject of more oracles against nations than any other people or country, the relationship between Israel and Edom becomes like the relationship between Jacob and Esau. Sometimes friendly, sometimes antagonistic, 
seemingly always tenuous. But where does this come from? Well, here's the passage I want to read with you from the book of Obadiah. And then we'll explain a little bit more on where this comes from and how we put it in context. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy destroy the wise in Edom, people of understanding in the mountains of Esau? You warriors to man will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. Edom has this prophecy being spoken so harshly against it, but it's not without context and it doesn't come without warning. What they are receiving is the logical consequence of decisions that they have made as a people. God is not random in his judgments against other nations in the Old Testament. And you've got to put this in the context of the whole story in order for it to make sense. So let's find the story. This is the origin of the story of Jacob and Esau. From Genesis chapter 25. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife Rebecca became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red. His whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. So this is the story of the origin of the differences between Israel and Edom. It's the story of Jacob and Esau and their descendants that will all follow. They spend the rest of this time in their life engaged in conflict with each other, and their relationship sometimes close, sometimes deceptive. And the older is told that he will serve the younger. And we get a picture, a microcosm of the battles that will rage between nations and different peoples. The brotherhood of humanity will be divided along many lines. Even inside the womb from the same mother and same father. Because of the extent of sin within us, we battle one another. And now as a global humanity living inside of what is now termed a global village, we are still a very dysfunctional family. Between me and my brothers and sisters who live in the same town at times and me and my brothers and sisters who live on the other side of the world, we constantly create a mentality of us and them. And we use the differences between us to rank and classify and value humanity. But brother versus brother doesn't start in the Jacob and Esau story. It starts even earlier than that. First brothers. First two brothers in the history of the world. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? 
I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opens its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. We are already told in the opening pages that our paths and choices of sin will have consequences that will be visited upon us. So much of the prophecies are explained as if-then clauses. If you do this, this is going to happen. If you choose the path of life, if you choose the path of obedience, this is what will happen within your life. However, if you choose disobedience, if you choose destruction, I cannot help the fact that you have removed yourself from the place and the path of blessing and life. And what we see unravel and continue to happen is exactly that in the biblical story. In the, in the book of Numbers, Israel is out in the Exodus. They're trying to get towards the promised land. Now, several generations later, the descendants of Esau have settled into Edom. And the Israelites are wandering on the way to the promised land. Now we are here at Kadesh, a town on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your country, through Edom. We will not go through any field or vineyard or drink water from any well. We will travel along the king's highway and not turn to the right or to the left until we have passed through your territory. But Edom answered, you may not pass through here. If you try, we will march out and attack you with the sword. The Israelites replied, we will go along the main road. And if we or our livestock Drink from any of your water, we will pay for it. We only want to pass through on foot, nothing else. Again they answered, you may not pass through. Then Edom came out against them with a large and powerful army. This animosity continues to grow. It's passed down, it's passed down. The distrust breeds more distrust, and now they can't even pass through this country on their way to the fulfillment of God's promises. After that passage, as time begins to unfold, Israel settles into the promised land, and this animosity continues. Saul goes to battle against the Edomites. David goes to battle. Solomon goes to battle. The kings who will follow afterwards again and again, they make allies with other countries, trying to get on top of one another, fulfilling all the while the prophecy that was spoken from the very beginning. You will fight against each other. This will be hard, and it will be difficult because of what you have done. Finally, in 2 Chronicles, Edom establishes a bit of a lasting independence. Again, fulfilling the prophecy. But Jerusalem falls in 587 B.C. at the hand of the Babylonians in a judgment spoken by another prophet. The prophets have called for this. They have told Israel, you will be taken in an exile and only a remnant will remain and Israel will be redefined. You will no longer be seen as a people who are defined by genealogical or your bloodlines, but true Israel will be those who can come out of captivity True Israel will be those who will receive the love of God and receive the mandate he's been given you to be a blessing to all the nations. But after this fall, after the Babylonians come in and ransack and destroy Jerusalem, it is the Edomites who come in like vultures and pillage the city. This is what prompts the book of Obadiah. It is not without precedent. It has not just fallen out of the sky. It has a massive hundreds of years building historical context. Obadiah speaks against someone who is saying and saying to them, this is your brother. 
This relationship has always been tenuous, and now here you are in their hour of need, ransacking, pillaging their city, swooping in like vultures. The way you have acted will be revisited upon you, and if this is what you want in this world, this is what will come of the results of your choosing. And so this story, this is the place of Obadiah prophesying, speaking to another nation, talking about God's plan and the unfolding of all of the nations. And finally, at the end of this timeline, we approach the New Testament. And in the opening pages here again in the New Testament, Edom comes to the forefront of the story. Herod the Great, a descendant of Edom, of Esau, is the one who calls for the death of Jesus and tries to kill him already as an infant. Edom comes up in other books in the New Testament in Hebrews and here again in Romans 9. Paul uses the Jacob and Esau story to explain God's sovereign choice and the notion of grace and how this works. Throughout the New Testament, we're reminded repeatedly that all, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Well, what does that mean? That those who will make up true Israel will be those who have engaged not in a circumcision of the flesh but one of the heart. That what it means to constitute true Israel is not dependent on who your dad or your grandfather or your genealogical lines are tied to, but whether or not you will receive the Messiah that has come for the blessing of the nations and the reconciliation of all creation. The 12 tribes become redefined in a new Israel and the true humanity as Jesus surrounds himself with 12 disciples, reconstituting the new people of God. And the permeable walls that were allowed in the Old Testament already in the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 of Moabites and people from other nations who will become part of the bloodline even of Jesus prove and show that it was never about just one nation, one people group. This is not a nationalistic conversation in the Old Testament. It is still and always has been about the blessing of all nations. Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders and I do not define myself from what country I come from, what language I speak, or the color of my skin. And so when the Pentecost arrival of the Holy Spirit comes, one language of truth, one language and vision and picture of what the kingdom of God and its allegiance will look like, stands and speaks, and all the nations of the world understand the voice of the Holy Spirit. And the borders come down between nations that have waged war. And another generation of the prophethood of all believers who sits here will have to engage in these conversations. We have waged war along all these lines, all born out of our selfishness and our insecurities and the sin that is within us. But the vision of the Holy Spirit for what will take place and for what Christ came to reconcile is so much bigger than our own fears and insecurities and greed. And we must come to terms with this. We must be people about whose spirit of God will take us in trust beyond the borders of our own countries and our own allegiances. Of the things we've been taught to put our faith in. Of what we know and what looks like us and feels like home. Because God is moving and he is at work. True Israel will be all those who will claim this Messiah. True Israel will be those who follow him. And we will see the reconciliation of all the nations. The question is, how much a part of it do we want to be within our lifetime? 
How much do we want to see the kingdom of God come? And you will have opportunities in the way that you vote, in the way that you advocate, in the places that you travel, in the language and conversations that you partake in, in the news that you watch, in the jobs that you engage, in the marriages that you are part of, in the way that you raise your children, in the way that we speak about other people, in the jokes that we tell. Are we or are we not about the reconciliation of all nations under the one who is sovereign? And we must call each other out. We must raise the bar in terms of what it is that we will do to see the kingdom of God come in this place, to enter into his work. You and I are called to a higher allegiance. Dream a bigger dream. All nations, all tribes, all tongues coming under his lordship. I'll ask you to close with me in prayer. And I'll borrow some words from Shane Claiborne as we do. Father, today before your face and in this place of worship, we pledge our ultimate allegiance to the kingdom of God, to a peace that is not like Rome's, to the gospel of enemy love, to the kingdom of the poor and broken, To a king who loves his enemies so much, he died for them. To the least of these with whom Christ dwells. To the transnational church that transcends the artificial borders of nations. To the refugee of Nazareth. To the homeless rabbi who had no place to lay his head. To the cross rather than the sword. To the banner of love that flies above any and every flag, to the one who rules with a towel rather than an iron fist, to the one who rides a donkey rather than a war horse, to the revolution that is setting both the oppressed and the oppressor free, to the way that leads to life, to the slaughtered lamb. Father, we pledge allegiance, and together we proclaim your praises. From the margins of the empire to the centers of wealth and power. And wherever you will take us, wherever we will go, long live the slaughtered lamb under whose banner we walk. Amen. Will you stand and receive a blessing going in the rest of your day? Children of a great and a global God. Abraham's blessing was that he would be a blessing to the nations, and so will you. We will follow our Savior. We will be about reconciliation of all things. May you find your place within that. May your voice be strong. May your heart be unwavering. May you see the kingdom of God come as the nations bow before him. Amen. Have a great day.